0: Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by audiodrama.ai. Episode 5. Solomon Kane: The Moon of the Skulls by Robert E. Howard. Chapter 3 of 7. Lilith. Lady of
1: Mystery what is thy history, B-rick.
0: A couch stood in the middle of the room, and on its silken surface lay a woman. A woman whose skin was white and whose reddish gold hair fell about her bare shoulders. She now sprang erect, fright flooding her fine gray eyes, lips parted to utter a cry, which she has suddenly checked. "You," she exclaimed. "How did you?" Solomon Kane closed the door behind him and came toward her, a rare smile on his dark face. You remember me, do you not, Marilyn? The fear had already faded from her eyes even before he spoke, to be replaced by a look of incredible wonder and dazed bewilderment. Captain Kane, I cannot understand. It seemed no one would ever come. She drew a small hand wearily across her white brow, swaying suddenly. Kane caught her in his arms. She was only a girl, little more than a child, and laid her gently on the couch. There, chafing her wrists gently, he talked in a low, hurried monotone, keeping an eye on the door all the time. Which door, by the way? Seemed to be the only entrance or egress from the room. While he talked, he mechanically took in the chamber, noting that it was almost a duplicate of the outer room, as regards hangings and general furnishings. First, said he, before we go into any other matters, tell me, are you closely guarded? Very closely, sir, she murmured hopelessly. I know not how you came here, but we can never escape. Let me tell you swiftly how I came to be here, and mayhap you will be more hopeful when I tell you of the difficulties already overcome. Lie still now, Marilyn." And I will tell you how I came to seek an English Harris in the devil city of Nagari. I killed Sir John Tafferall in a duel. As to the reason, tis neither here nor there. But slander and a black lie lay behind it. Ere he died, he confessed that he had committed a foul crime some years ago. You remember, of course. The affection cherished for you by your cousin, Old Lord Hildred Tafferall, Sir John's uncle. Sir John feared that the old Lord dying without issue might leave the great Taffrail estates to you. Years ago, you disappeared and Sir John spread the rumor that you had drowned. Yet when he lay dying with my rapier through his body, he gasped out that he had kidnapped you and sold you to a Barbary rover, whom he named a bloody pirate whose name has not been unknown on England's coasts aforetime. So I came seeking you and a long weary trail it has been, stretching into long leagues and bitter years. First I sailed the seas searching for Elgar, the Barbary corsair named by Sir John. I found him in the crash and roar of an ocean battle. He died, but even as he lay dying, he told me that he had sold you in turn to a merchant out of Stamboul. So to the Levant, I went in there by chance came upon a Greek sailor whom the Moors had crucified on the shore for piracy. I cut him down and asked him the question I asked all men, if he had in his wanderings seen a captive English girl child with yellow curls. I learned that he had been one of the crew of the Stamboul merchants, and that she had, on her homeward voyage, been set upon by a Portuguese slaver and sunk, this renegade Greek and the child being among the few who were taken aboard the slaver. This slaver then, cruising south for black ivory, had been ambushed in a small bay on the African west coast. And of your further fate, the Greek knew nothing, for he had escaped the general massacre, and taking to sea in an open boat, had been taken up by a ship of Genoese freebooters. To the west coast then, I came on the slim chance that you still lived, and there heard among the natives that some years ago, a white child had been taken from a ship whose crew had been slain and sent inland as a part of the tribute the shore tribes paid to the upper river chiefs. Then all traces ceased. For months I wandered without a clue as to your whereabouts, nay, without a hint that you even lived. Then I chanced to hear among the river tribes of the demon city of Nagari and the black queen who kept a white woman for a slave. I came here. Kane's matter of fact tone, his unfurbished narration, gave no hint of the full meaning of that tale, of what lay behind those calm and measured words the sea fights and the land fights, the years of privation and heartbreaking toil, the ceaseless danger, the everlasting wandering through hostile and unknown lands, the tedious and deadening labor of ferreting out the information he wished from ignorant, sullen, and unfriendly savages black and white. I came here, said Cain simply. But what a world of courage and effort was symbolized by that phrase. A long red trail, black shadows and crimson shadows, weaving a devil's dance, marked by flashing swords and the smoke of battle, by faltering words, falling like drops of blood from the lips of dying men. Not a consciously dramatic man. Certainly, was Solomon Kane he told his tale in the same manner in which he had overcome terrific obstacles coldly briefly and without heroics you see Marilyn he concluded gently I have not come this far and done this much to now meet with defeat take heart child we will find a way out of this fearful place Sir John took me on his saddle bow the girl said dazedly and speaking slowly as if her native language came strangely to her from years of unuse, as she framed in halting words an English evening of long ago. He carried me to the seashore where a galley's boat waited, filled with fierce men, dark and mustached, and having scimitars, and great rings to the fingers. The captain, a Muslim with a face like a hawk, took me, I weeping with fear, and bore me to his galley. Yet he was kind to me in his way, I being little more than a baby, and at last sold me to a Turkish merchant, as he told you. This merchant he met off the southern coast of France, after many days of sea travel. This man did not use me badly, yet I feared him, for he was a man of cruel countenance, and made me understand that I was to be sold to a black sultan of the Moors. However, in the gates of Hercules, his ship was set upon by a Cadiz slaver, and things came about as you have said. The captain of the slaver believed me to be the child of some wealthy English family and intended holding me for ransom, but in a grim, darksome bay on the African coast. He perished with all his men, except the Greek you have mentioned, and I was taken captive by a black chieftain. I was terribly afraid and thought he would slay me, but he did me no harm and sent me up country with an escort who also bore much loot taken from the ship. This loot, together with myself, was, as you know, intended for a powerful king of the river peoples. But it never reached him, for a roving band of Nagari fell upon the beach warriors and slew them all. Then I was taken to the city and have since remained slave to Queen Nakari. How I have lived through all those terrible scenes of battle and cruelty and murder, I know not. A providence has watched over you, child, said Cain, the power which doth care for weak women and helpless children, which led me to you in spite of all hindrances, and which shall yet lead us forth from this place, God willing. My people, she exclaimed suddenly, like one awaking from a dream, what of them, all in good health and fortune, child, save that they have sorrowed for you through the long years? "'Nay, old Sir Hildred hath the gout, "'and doth so swear thereat "'that I fear for his soul at times. "'Yet methinks that the sight of you, little Marilyn, "'would mend him. "'Still, Captain Kane said the girl, "'I cannot understand why you came alone. "'Your brothers would have come with me, child, "'but it was not sure that you lived, "'and I was lot that any other tafferal should die "'in a land far from good English soil.' I rid the country of an evil taferol. Twas but just, I should restore in his place a good taferol. If so be, she still lived. I and I alone. This explanation Cain himself believed. He never sought to analyze his motives, and he never wavered. Once his mind was made up, though he always acted on impulse, he firmly believed that all his actions were governed by cold and logical reasonings. He was a man born out of his time, a strange blending of Puritan and Cavalier, with a touch of the ancient philosopher and more than a touch of the pagan, though the last assertion would have shocked him unspeakably. An atavist of the days of blind chivalry he was, a knight errant in the somber clothes of a fanatic. A hunger in his soul drove him on and on, an urge to right all wrongs, protect all weaker things. Avenge all crimes against right and justice. Wayward and restless as the wind, he was consistent in only one respect. He was true to his ideals of justice and right. Such was Solomon Cain. Marilyn, he now said kindly, taking her small hands in his sword-calloused fingers. Methinks you have changed greatly in the years. You were a rosy and chubby little maid when I used to dandle you on my knee in old England. Now you seem drawn and pale of face, though you are beautiful as the nymphs of the heathen books. There are haunting ghosts in your eyes, child. Do they misuse you here? She lay back on the couch, and the blood drained slowly from her already pallid features until she was deathly white. Cain bent over her, startled. Her voice came in a whisper, Ask me not. There are deeds better hidden in the darkness of night and forgetfulness. There are sights which blast the eyes and leave their burning mark forever on the brain. The walls of ancient cities wrecked not of by men have looked upon scenes not to be spoken of, even in whispers. Her eyes closed wearily, and Cain's troubled, somber eyes unconsciously traced the thin blue lines of her veins prominent against the unnatural whiteness of her skin here's some demoniacal thing he muttered a mystery i murmured the girl a mystery that was old when egypt was young and nameless evil more ancient than dark babylon that spawned in terrible black cities when the world was young and strange cain frowned troubled At the girl's strange words, he felt an eerie, crawling fear at the back of his brain, as if dim racial memories stirred in the eon-deep gulfs, conjuring up grim, chaotic visions, elusive and nightmarish. Suddenly, Marilyn sat erect, her eyes flaring wide with fright. Kane heard a door open somewhere. Nakari, whispered the girl urgently. Swift, she must not find you here. Hide quickly. And, as Cain turned, keep silent, whatever may chance. She lay back on the couch, feigning slumber as Kane crossed the room and concealed himself behind some tapestries, which, hanging upon the wall, hid a niche that might have once held a statue of some sort. He had scarcely done so when the single door of the room opened, and a strange barbaric figure stood framed in it. Nakari, queen of Nagari, had come to her slave. The black woman was clad as she had been when he had seen her on the throne, and the colored armlets and anklets clanked as she closed the door behind her and came into the room. She moved with the easy sinuousness of a she-leopard, and in spite of himself, the watcher was struck with admiration for her lithe beauty. Yet at the same time, a shudder of repulsion shook him, for her eyes gleamed with vibrant and magnetic evil, older than the world. Lilith, thought Cain, she is beautiful and terrible as Purgatory. She is Lilith, that foul, lovely woman of ancient legend. Nakari halted by the couch, stood looking down upon her captive for a moment, then with an enigmatic smile, bent and shook her. Marilyn opened her eyes, sat up, then slipped from her couch and knelt before her black mistress an act which caused Cain to curse beneath his breath. The queen laughed and, seating herself upon the couch, motioned the girl to rise, and then put an arm about her waist and drew her upon her lap. Cain watched, puzzled, while Nakari caressed the white girl in a lazy, amused manner. This might be affection, but to Cain it seemed more like a sated leopard teasing its victim. There was an air of mockery and studied cruelty about the whole affair. You are very soft and pretty, Mara, Nakari murmured lazily, much prettier than the black girls who serve me. The time approaches, little one, for your nuptial, and a fairer bride has never been borne up the black stairs. Marilyn began to tremble, and Kane thought she was going to faint. Nakari's eyes gleamed strangely beneath her long-lash drooping lids, and her full red lips curved in a faint, tantalizing smile. Her every action seemed fraught with some sinister meaning. Cain began to sweat profusely. Mara, said the Black Queen, you are honored above all other girls, yet you are not content. Think how the girls of Nagari will envy you, Mara, when the priests sing the nuptial song and the moon of skulls looks over the black crest of the Tower of Death. Think, little bride of the master. How many girls have given their lives to be his bride? And Nakari laughed in her hateful musical way, as at a rare jest. And then suddenly she stopped short. Her eyes narrowed to slits as they swept the room and her whole body tensed. Her hand went to her girdle and came away with a long, thin dagger. Kane sighted along the barrel of his pistol, finger against the trigger, only a natural hesitancy against shooting a woman kept him from sending death into the black heart of nakari for he believed that she was about to murder the girl then with a lithe cat-like motion she thrust the girl from her knees and bounded back across the room her eyes fixed with blazing intensity on the tapestry behind which kane stood had those keen eyes discovered him he quickly learned who is there she rapped out fiercely Who hides behind those hangings? I do not see you nor hear you, but I know someone is there. Cain remained silent. Nakari's wild beast instinct had betrayed him, and he was uncertain as to what course to follow. His next actions depended on the queen. Mara. Nakari's voice slashed like a whip. Who is behind those hangings? Answer me. Shall I give you a taste of the whip again? The girl seemed incapable of speech. She cowered where she had fallen. Her beautiful eyes full of terror, Nikari, her blazing gaze never wavering, reached behind her with her free hand and gripped a cord hanging from the wall. She jerked viciously. Kane felt the tapestries whip back on either side of him and he stood revealed. For a moment, the strange tableau held the gaunt white man in his blood-stained, tattered garments. The long pistol gripped in his right hand. Across the room, the Black Queen in her savage finery. One arm still lifted to the cord, the other hand holding the dagger in front of her. The white girl, cowering on the floor. Then Cain spoke. Keep silent, Nakari, or you die. The Queen seemed numbed and struck speechless by the sudden apparition. Kane stepped from among the tapestries and slowly approached her. You... She found her voice at last. You must be he of whom the guardsmen spake. There are not two other white men in Nagari. They said you fell to your death. How then? Silence. Kane's voice cut in harshly on her amazed babblings. He knew that the pistol meant nothing to her, but she sensed the threat of the long blade in his left hand. Marilyn, still unconsciously speaking in the River Tribe's language, take cords from the hangings and bind her. He was about the middle of the chamber now. Nakari's face had lost much of its helpless bewilderment and into her blazing eyes stole a crafty gleam. She deliberately let her dagger fall as in token of surrender. Then suddenly her hand shot high above her head and gripped another thick cord. Kane heard Marilyn scream But before he could take another step, before he could pull the trigger or even think, the floor fell beneath his feet, and he shot down into abysmal blackness. He did not fall far, and he landed on his feet. But the force of the fall sent him to his knees, and even as he went down, sensing a presence in the darkness beside him, something crashed against his skull, and he dropped into a yet blacker abyss of unconsciousness. Chapter 4 of 7 Dreams of Empire.
1: For Rome was given to rule the world and gat of it little joy. But we, we shall enjoy the world, the whole huge world a toy. Chesterton.
0: Slowly, Cain drifted back from the dim realms where the unseen assailant's bludgeon had hurled him. Something hindered the motion of his hands and there was a metallic clanking when he sought to raise them to his aching, throbbing head. He lay in utter darkness, but he could not determine whether this was absence of light or whether he was still blinded by the blow. He dazedly collected his scattered faculties and realized that he was lying on a damp stone floor, shackled by wrist and ankle, with heavy iron chains, which were rough and rusty to the touch. How long he lay there, he never knew. The silence was broken only by the drumming pulse in his own aching head and the scamper and chattering of rats. At last, a red glow sprang up in the darkness and grew before his eyes. Framed in the grisly radiance, rose the sinister and sardonic face of Nakari. Kane shook his head, striving to rid himself of the illusion. But the light grew, and as his eyes accustomed themselves to it, He saw that it emanated from a torch borne in the hand of the queen. In the illumination, he now saw that he lay in a small, dank cell, whose walls, ceiling, and floor were of stone. The heavy chains which held him captive were made fast to metal rings. Set deep in the wall, there was but one door, which was apparently of bronze. Nakari set the torch in a niche near the door, and coming forward, stood over her captive... "'gazing down at him in a manner rather speculating than mocking. "'You are he who fought the men on the cliff.' "'The remark was an assertion rather than a question. "'They said you fell into the abyss. "'Did they lie? "'Did you bribe them to lie? "'Or how did you escape? "'Are you a magician, and did you fly to the bottom of the chasm "'and then fly to my palace?' "'Speak.' "'Cain remained silent. "'Nakari cursed. "'Speak.' or I will have your eyes torn out. I will cut your fingers off and burn your feet. She kicked him viciously, but Cain lay silent, his deep somber eyes boring up into her face until the feral gleam faded from her eyes to be replaced by an avid interest and wonder. She seated herself on a stone bench, resting her elbows on her knees and her chin on her hands. I never saw a white man before, she said. Are all white men like you? Bah, that cannot be. Most men are fools, black or white. I know most black men are fools, and white men are not gods, as the river tribes say. They are only men. I, who know all the ancient mysteries, say they are only men. But white men have strange mysteries too. They tell me, the wanderers of the river tribes and Mara. They have war clubs that make a noise like thunder and kill afar off. That thing which you held in your right hand? Was that one of those clubs? Cain permitted himself a grim smile. Nakari, if you know all mysteries, how can I tell you aught that you know not already? How deep and cold and strange your eyes are. The queen said as if he had not spoken. How strange your whole appearance is. And you have the bearing of a king. You do not fear me. "'I never met a man who neither loved nor feared me. "'You would never fear me, but you could learn to love me. "'Look at me, white man. "'Am I not beautiful?' "'You are beautiful,' answered Cain. "'Nakari smiled and then frowned. "'The way you say that, it is no compliment. "'You hate me, do you not?' "'As a man hates a serpent,' Cain replied bluntly. "'Nakari's eyes blazed with almost insane fury.' Her hands clenched until the long nails sank into the palms. Then, as quickly as her anger had arisen, it ebbed away. You have the heart of a king, she said calmly. Else you would fear me. Are you a king in your land? I am only a landless wanderer. You might be a king here, Nakari said slowly. I offer you more than that. Kane's eyes narrowed as the queen leaned toward him, vibrant with suppressed excitement. White man, what is it that you want more than anything else in the world? To take the white girl you call Mara and go. Nakari sank back with an impatient exclamation. You cannot have her. She is the promised bride of the master. Even I could not save her, even if I wished. Forget her. I will help you forget her. Listen, white man. No, no. Keep silent until I have finished. She rushed on, her words tumbling over each other in her eagerness. Nagari is fading. Her might is crumbling. But a strong man beside her queen might build it up again, might restore all her vanishing glory. Listen, white man. Sit by me on the throne of Nagari. Solomon's brain reeled. Perhaps it was the woman's fierce magnetic personality, the dynamic power she instilled in her fiery words. But at the moment, her wild plan seemed not at all wild and impossible. Lurid and chaotic visions flamed through the Puritan's brain. Europe torn by civil and religious strife, divided against herself, betrayed by her rulers. Tottering. Ay, Europe was in desperate straits now, and might prove an easy victim for some strong, savage race of conquerors. What man can say truthfully that in his heart there lurks not a yearning for power and conquest. Out on ye, daughter of Satan, a vaunt. Nikari leaped like a tiger cat to her feet, her eyes flaming now with passionate fury. A dagger gleamed in her hand, and she raised it high above Cain's breast with a feline scream of hate. Freedom! She will find her freedom when the moon of skulls leers down on the black altar. As for you... You shall rot in this dungeon. You are a fool. Africa's greatest queen has offered you her love and the empire of the world. And you revile her. You love the white girl, perhaps? Until the moon of skulls, she is mine. And I leave you to think about this. That she shall be punished as I have punished her before. Hung up by her wrists, naked and whipped until she swoons. Nikari laughed as Cain tore savagely at his shackles. She crossed to the door, opened it, then hesitated and turned back for another word. This is a foul place, white man. And maybe you hate me the more for chaining you here. Maybe in Nakari's beautiful throne room, with wealth and luxury spread before you, you will look upon her with more favor. Very soon, I shall send for you. But first, I will leave you here a while to reflect. Remember, Love Nakari, and the kingdom of the world is yours. Hate her. This cell is your realm. The bronze door clanged sullenly. But more hateful to the imprisoned Englishman was the venomous silvery laugh of Nakari. Time passed slowly in the darkness. After what seemed a long time, the door opened again. This time to admit a huge black, who brought food and a sort of thin wine. Cain ate and drank ravenously, and afterward slept. The strain of the last few days had worn him greatly, mentally and physically, but when he awoke, he felt fresh and strong. Again, the door opened and two great black warriors entered. In the light of the torches they bore, Cain saw that they were giants, clad in loincloths, and ostrich-plume headgear, and bearing long spears in their hands. Nikari wishes you to come to her, white man, was all they said as they took off his shackles. He arose, exultant in even brief freedom, his keen brain working fiercely for a way of escape. Evidently, the fame of his prowess had spread, for the two warriors showed great respect for him. They motioned him to precede them and walked carefully behind him, the points of their spears boring into his back. Though they were two to one, and he was unarmed. They were taking no chances. The gazes they directed at him were full of awe and suspicion, and Cain decided that Nakari had told the truth when she had said that he was the first white man to come to Nagari. Down a long, dark corridor they went, his captors guiding him with light prods of their spears, up a narrow, winding stair, down another passageway, up another stair. And then they emerged into the vast maze of gigantic pillars, into which Cain had first come. As they started down this huge hall, Cain's eyes suddenly fell on a strange and fantastic picture painted on the wall ahead of him. His heart gave a sudden leap as he recognized it. It was some distance in front of him, and he edged imperceptibly toward the wall until he and his guards were walking along very close to it. Now, he was almost abreast of the picture— and could even make out the mark his dagger had made upon it. The warriors following Cain were amazed to hear him gasp suddenly, like a man struck by a spear. He wavered in his stride and began clutching at the air for support. They eyed each other doubtfully and prodded him, but he cried out like a dying man and slowly crumpled to the floor, where he lay in a strange, unnatural position. One leg doubled back under him, and one arm half supporting his lolling body. The blacks looked at him fearfully. To all appearances he was dying, but there was no wound upon him. They threatened him with their spears, but he paid no heed. Then they lowered their weapons uncertainly, and one of them bent over him. Then it happened. The instant the blacks stooped forward, Cain came up like a steel spring released. His right fist following his motion curved up from his hip in a whistling half-circle and crashed against the black giant's jaw. Delivered with all the power of arm and shoulder, propelled by the upthrust of the powerful legs as Kane straightened, the blow was like that of a slung shot. The negro slumped to the floor, unconscious before his knees gave way. The other warrior plunged forward with a bellow. But even as his victim fell, Kane twisted aside and his frantic hand found the secret spring in the painting and pressed. All happened in the breath of a second. Quick as the warrior was, Cain was quicker, for he moved with the dynamic speed of a famished wolf. For an instant, the falling body of the senseless black hindered the other warrior's thrust, and in that instant, Cain felt the hidden door give way. From the corner of his eye, he saw a long gleam of steel shooting for his heart. He twisted about and hurled himself against the door, vanishing through it, even as the stabbing spear slit the skin on his shoulder. To the dazed and bewildered warrior, who stood with weapon upraised for another thrust, it seemed as if the white man had simply vanished through a solid wall, for only a fantastic picture met his gaze, and this did not give to his efforts.
1: Chesterton,
0: Kane laughed grimly. Do you offer me my life? Listen to the words of Nakari. Queen of Nagari, you say you are a landless man. I will make you a king. I will give you the world for a toy. Her eyes blazed. Her whole body quivered with dynamic intensity. I have talked to travelers, to captives and slaves, men from far countries. I know that this land of mountains and rivers and jungle is not all the world. There are far-off nations and cities and kings and queens to be crushed and broken. Send afar to your people for the thunderclubs to arm my warriors. My nation is still Lord of Central Africa. Together we will band the conquered tribes. Call back the days when the realm of ancient Nagari spanned the land from sea to sea. We will subjugate all the tribes of the river, the plain and the seashore, and instead of slaying them all, we will make one mighty army of them. And then, when all Africa is under our heel, we will sweep forth upon the world like a hungry lion to rend and tear and destroy. For a moment, the devil sorely tempted Solomon Cain. Then, before his mind's eye rose the wistful, sad face of Marilyn Tafferal, and Solomon cursed. A moment she hovered like a shadow of death above him. Then her arms sank and she laughed. Chapter 5 of 7. For a thousand years.
1: The blind gods roar and rave and dream of all cities under the sea. Chesterton.
0: Cain slammed the hidden door shut behind him, jammed down the spring and for a moment leaned against it. Every muscle tensed, expecting to hold it against the efforts of a horde of spearmen. But nothing of the sort materialized. He heard the black warrior fumbling outside for a time. Then that sound, too, ceased. It seemed impossible that these people should have lived in this palace as long as they had without discovering the secret doors and passages. But it was a conclusion which forced itself upon Cain's mind. At last, he decided that he was safe from pursuit, for the time being. And turning, started down the long, narrow corridor with its eon-old dust and its dim gray light. He felt baffled and furious. Though he was free from Nikari's shackles, he had no idea how long he had been in the palace. It seemed ages. It must be day now, for it was light in the outer halls, and he had seen no torches after they had left the subterranean dungeons. He wondered if Nikari had carried out her threat of vengeance on the helpless girl and swore passionately, free for the time being, yes, but unarmed and hunted through this infernal palace like a rat. How could he aid either himself or Marilyn? But his confidence never faltered. He was in the right, and some way would present itself. Suddenly, a narrow stairway branched off the main passageway, and up this he went, the light growing stronger and stronger until he stood in the full glare of the African sunlight. The stair terminated in a sort of small landing, directly in front of which was a tiny window, heavily barred. Through this, he saw the blue sky, tinted gold with the blazing sunlight. The sight was like wine to him, and he drew in deep breaths of fresh, untainted air, breathing deep as if to rid his lungs of the aura of dust and decayed grandeur through which he had been passing. He was looking out over a weird and bizarre landscape. Far to the right and the left loomed up great black crags, and beneath them there reared castles and towers of stone, of strange architecture. It was as if giants from some other planet had thrown them up in a wild and chaotic debauch of creation. These buildings were backed solidly against the cliffs, and Cain knew that Nikari's palace also must be built into the wall of the crag behind it. He seemed to be in the front of that palace in a sort of minaret built on the outer wall. But there was only one window in it, and his view was limited. Far below him, through the winding and narrow streets of that strange city, swarms of black people went to and fro, seeming like black ants to the watcher above. East, north, and south, the cliffs formed a natural bulwark. Only to the west was a built wall. The sun was sinking west. Kane turned reluctantly from the barred window and went down the stairs again. Again, he paced down the narrow gray corridor, aimlessly and planlessly, for what seemed miles and miles. He descended lower and lower into passages that lay below passages. The light grew dimmer and a dank slime appeared on the walls. Then Kane halted, a faint sound from beyond the wall arresting him. What was that? A faint rattle the rattle of chains. Cain leaned close to the wall, and in the semi-darkness his hand encountered a rusty spring. He worked at it cautiously, and presently felt the hidden door it betokened swing inward. He gazed out warily. He was looking into a cell, the counterpart of the one in which he had been confined. A smoldering torch was thrust into a niche on the wall, and by its lurid and flickering light, he made out a form on the floor. Shackled wrist and ankle as he had been shackled, a man. At first, Cain thought him to be a negro, but a second glance made him doubt. The hair was too straight, the features too regular. Negroid, yes. But some alien blood in his veins had sharpened those features and given the man that high, magnificent forehead and those hard, vibrant eyes which stared at Cain so intensely. The skin was dark, but not black. The man spoke in an unfamiliar dialect, one which was strangely distinct and clear-cut in contrast to the guttural jargon of the black people with whom Cain was familiar. The Englishman spoke in English, and then in the language of the river tribes. "'You who come through the ancient door,' said the other, in the latter dialect. "'Who are you? "'You are no black man. "'At first I thought you one of the old race,' but now I see you are not as they. Once come you? I am Solomon Cain, said the Puritan, a prisoner in this devil city. I come from far across the blue salt sea. The man's eyes lighted at the word. The sea, the ancient and everlasting. The sea, which I never saw but which cradled the glory of my ancestors. Tell me, stranger. Have you, like they, sailed across the breast of the great blue monster, and have your eyes looked on the golden spires of Atlantis and the crimson walls of Mu? Truly, answered Solomon uncertainly. I have sailed the seas even to Hindustan and Cathay, but of the countries you mention, I know nothing. Nay, the other side. I dream. I dream. Already the shadow of the great night falls across my brain, and my words wander. Stranger, There have been times when these cold walls and floor have seemed to melt into green surging deeps, and my soul was filled with the deep booming of the everlasting sea. I, who have never seen the sea, Cain shuddered involuntarily. Surely this man was insane. Suddenly the other shot out a withered claw-like hand and gripped his arm, despite the hampering chain. You, whose skin is so strangely white... ''Have you seen Nakari? The she-fiend who rules this crumbling city? I have seen her,'' said Cain grimly. ''And now I flee like a hunted rat from her murderers.'' ''You hate her,'' the other cried. ''Huh. I know. You seek Mara, the white girl who is her slave.'' ''Aye. Listen, white man.'' The shackled one spoke with strange solemnity. ''I am dying. Nakari's rack has done its work.'' I die, and with me dies the shadow of the glory that was my nation's. For I am the last of my race. In all the world there is none like me. Hark now to the voice of a dying race. And Cain, leaning there in the flickering semi-darkness of the cell, heard the strangest tale to which man has ever listened, brought out of the mist of the dim dawn ages by the lips of delirium. Clear and distinct, the words fell from the dying man, and Cain alternately burned and froze as vista after gigantic vista of time and space swept up before him. Long eons ago, ages, ages ago, the empire of my race rose proudly above the waves. So long ago was it that no man remembers an ancestor who remembered it. In a great land to the west, our cities rose. Our golden spires split the stars. Our purple-proud galleys broke the waves around the world, looting the sunset for its treasure and the sunrise for its wealth. Our legions swept forth to the north and to the south, to the west and the east, and none could stand before them. Our cities banded the world. We sent our colonies to all lands to subdue all savages, red, white, or black, and enslave them. They toiled for us in the mines and at the galleys' oars. All over the world, the brown people of Atlantis reigned supreme. We were a sea people, and we delved the deeps of all the oceans. The mysteries were known to us, and the secret things of land and sea and sky. We read the stars and were wise. Sons of the sea, we exalted him above all others. We worshipped Valka and Hota. "'Honan and Golgor. "'Many virgins, many strong youths, "'died on their altars, "'and the smoke of the shrines blotted out the sun. "'Then the sea rose and shook himself. "'He thundered from his abyss, "'and the thrones of the world fell before him. "'New lands rose from the deep, "'and Atlantis and Mu were swallowed up by the gulf.' The Green Sea roared through the fanes and the castles, and the seaweed encrusted the golden spires and the Topaz Towers. The Empire of Atlantis vanished and was forgotten, passing into the everlasting gulf of time and oblivion. Likewise, the colony cities in barbaric lands, cut off from their mother kingdom, perished. The black savages and the white savages rose and burned and destroyed, until in all the world... Only the colony city of Nagari remained as a symbol of the lost empire. Here my ancestors ruled as kings, and the ancestors of Nakari, the she-cat, bent the knee of slavery to them. Years passed, stretching into centuries. The empire of Nagari dwindled. Tribe after tribe rose and flung off the chains, pressing the lines back from the sea. Until at last, the Sons of Atlantis gave way entirely and retreated into the city itself, the last stronghold of the race. Conquerors no longer, hemmed in by ferocious tribes. Yet they held those tribes at bay for a thousand years. Nagari was invincible from without. Her walls held firm. But within evil influences were at work. The Sons of Atlantis had brought their black slaves into the city with them. The rulers were warriors, scholars, priests, artisans. They did no menial work. For that, they depended upon the slaves. There were more of these slaves than there were masters. And they increased while the brown people dwindled. They mixed with each other more and more, as the race degenerated until at last only the priestcraft was free of the taint of black blood. Rulers sat on the throne of Negeri, who were nearly pure negro, And these allowed more and more wild tribesmen to enter the city in the guise of servants, mercenaries, and friends. Then came a day when these fierce slaves revolted and slew all who bore a trace of brown blood, except the priests and their families. These they imprisoned as fetish people. For a thousand years black men have ruled in Nagari, their kings guided by the captive brown priests, who, though prisoners, were yet the masters of kings. Cain listened enthralled to his imaginative mind. The tale burned and lived with strange fire from cosmic time and space. After all the sons of Atlantis, save the priests, were dead. There rose a great black king on the defiled throne of ancient Nagari. He was a tiger and his warriors were like leopards. They called themselves Nagari, ravishing even the name of their former masters, and none could stand before them. They swept the land from sea to sea, and the smoke of destruction put out the stars. The great river ran red, and the black lords of Nagari strode above the corpses of their black foes. Then the great king died, and the black empire crumbled, even as the brown kingdom of Nagari had crumbled. They were skilled in war. The dead sons of Atlantis, their masters, had trained them in the ways of battle, and against the wild tribesmen they were invincible. But only the ways of war had they learned, and the empire was torn with civil strife. Murder and intrigue stalked red-handed through the palaces and the streets, and the boundaries of the empire dwindled and dwindled. All the while, black kings with red, frenzied brains sat on the throne, and behind the curtains. Unseen but greatly feared, the brown priests guided the nation. Holding it together, keeping it from absolute destruction. Prisoners in the city were we, for there was nowhere else in the world to go. But we moved like ghosts through the secret passages in the walls and under the earth, spying on intrigue and doing secret magic. We upheld the cause of the royal family, the descendants of that tiger-like king of long ago. Against all plotting chiefs and grim are the tales which these silent walls could tell. For these black people are not as other Negroes. A latent insanity lurks in the brains of everyone. They have tasted so deeply and so long of slaughter and victory that they are as human leopards forever thirsting for blood. On their myriad wretched slaves, they have sated all lusts and desires until they have become foul and terrible beasts, forever seeking some new sensation forever quenching their fearful thirsts in blood. Like a lion, have they lurked in these crags for a thousand years, to rush forth and ravage the jungle and river people, enslaving and destroying. They are still invincible from without, though their possessions have dwindled to the very walls of the city. And their former great conquests and invasions have dwindled to raids for slaves. But as they faded, so too faded their masters, the brown priests, One by one, they died, until only I remained. In the last century, they too mixed with their rulers and slaves. And now, oh, black the shame upon me. I, the last son of Atlantis, bear in my veins the taint of Negro blood. They died. I remained, doing magic and guiding the black kings. I, the last brown man of Nagari. Then the she, fiend. Nakari, Arose. Cain leaned forward with quickened interest. New life surged into the tale as it touched upon his own time. Nakari, the name, was spat as a snake hisses. Slave and the daughter of a slave, yet she prevailed when her hour came and all the royal family died, and me, the last son of Atlantis. Me she prisoned and chained. She feared not the silent brown priests. For she was the daughter of a satellite, one of the lesser priests, black men who did the menial work of the brown masters, performing the lesser sacrifices, divining from the livers of fowls and serpents, and keeping the holy fires forever burning. Much she knew of us and our ways, and evil ambition burned in her. As a child, she danced in the march of the new moon, and as a young girl, she was one of the star maidens. Much of the lesser mysteries was known to her, and more she learned spying upon the secret rites of the priests who enacted hidden rituals that were old when the earth was young. For the remnants of Atlantis secretly kept alive the old worships of Valka and Hata, Honan and Golgor, long forgotten and not to be understood by these black people whose ancestors died screaming on their altars. Alone of all the black Nagari, She feared us not, and she not only overthrew the king and set herself on the throne, but she dominated the priests, the black satellites, and the few brown masters who were left. All these last, save me, died beneath the daggers of her assassins or on her racks. She alone, of all the myriad black thousands who have lived and died between these walls, guessed at the hidden passages and subterranean corridors, Secrets which we of the priestcraft had guarded jealously from the people for a thousand years. (laughs) Blind, black fools. To pass an ageless age in this city, yet never to learn of the secrets thereof. Black apes. Fools. Not even the lesser black priests know of the long gray corridors lit by phosphorescent ceilings, through which in bygone ages strange forms have glided silently. For our ancestors built Nagari as they built Atlantis, on a mighty scale and with an unknown art. Not for men alone did we build, but for the gods who moved unseen among us, and deep, the secrets. These ancient walls hold. Torture could not wring these secrets from our lips, but shackled in her dungeons, we trod our hidden corridors no more. For years the dust has gathered there, untouched by human foot, while we, and finally I alone, lay chained in these foul cells, and among the temples and the dark, mysterious shrines of old, move vile black satellites, elevated by Nakari to glories that were once mine. For I am the last Atlantean high priest. Black be their doom, and red their ruin. Valka and Golgor, gods lost and forgotten, whose memory shall die with me, strike down their walls and humble them unto the dust. Break the altars of their blind pagan gods. Cain realized that the man was wandering in his mind. The keen brain had begun to crumble at last. Tell me, said he, you mentioned the white girl Mara. What do you know of her? She was brought to Nagari years ago by raiders. The other answered, "'Only a few years after the rise of the Black Queen, whose slave she is. Little of her I know, for shortly after her arrival, Nakari turned on me, and the years that lie between have been grim black years, shot red with torture and agony. Here I have lain, hampered by my chains from escape, which lay in that door through which you entered.' and for the knowledge of which Nakari has torn me on racks and suspended me over slow fires. Cain shuddered. You know not if they have so misused the white girl. Her eyes are haunted, and she has wasted away. She has danced with the star maidens at Nakari's command, and has looked on the bloody and terrible rites of the Black Temple. She has lived for years among a people with whom blood is cheaper than water, who delight in slaughter and foul torture and such sights as she has looked upon would blast the eyes and wither the flesh of strong men. She has seen the victims of Nakura die amid horrid torments, and the sight is burned forever in the brain of the beholder. The rites of the Atlanteans the blacks took whereby to honor their crude gods, and though the essence of those rites is lost in the wasting years, yet even as Nakari's black apes perform them, they are not such as men can look on. Unshaken. Cain was thinking A fair day for the world when this Atlantis sank. For most certainly it bred a race of strange and unknown evil. Aloud he said, Who is this master of whom Nakari spake? And what meant she by calling Mara his bride? Nakura, Nakura, the skull of evil, the symbol of death that they worship. What know these savages of the gods of Seagirt Atlantis? What know they of the dread and unseen gods, whom their masters worshipped with majestic and mysterious rites? They understand not of the unseen essence, the invisible deity that reigns in the air and the elements. They must worship a material object, endowed with human shape. Nakura was the last great wizard of Atlantean Nagari. A brown renegade he was, who conspired against his own people and aided the revolt of the black beasts. In life they followed him, and in death they deified him. High in the tower of death his fleshless skull is set, and on that skull hinge the brains of all the people of Negari. Nay, we of Atlantis worshipped death, but we likewise worshipped life. These people worship only death— and call themselves sons of death. And the skull of Nakura has been to them for a thousand years, the symbol of their power, the evidence of their greatness. Do you mean Cain broke in impatiently on these ramblings, that they will sacrifice the girl to their god? In the moon of skulls, she will die on the black altar. What in God's name is this moon of skulls? Cain cried passionately. The full moon. At the full of each moon, which we name the Moon of Skulls, a virgin dies on the black altar before the Tower of Death, where centuries ago, virgins died in honor of Golgor, the god of Atlantis. Now, from the face of the tower that once housed the glory of Golgor, leers down the skull of the renegade wizard, and the people believe that his brain still lives therein to guide the star of the city. For look ye... Stranger, when the full moon gleams over the rim of the tower and the chant of the priests falls silent, then from the skull of Nakura thunders a great voice, raised in an ancient Atlantean chant, and the black people fall on their faces before it. But hark, there is a secret way, a stair leading up to a hidden niche behind the skull, and there a priest lurks and chants. In days gone by, one of the Sons of Atlantis had this office— and by all rights of men and gods, it should be mine this day. For though we sons of Atlantis worshipped our ancient gods in secret, the black people would have none of them, and to hold our power we were devotees to their foul gods, and we sang and sacrificed to him whose memory we cursed. But Nakari discovered the secret, known before only to the brown priests, and now one of her black satellites mounts the hidden stair, and yammers forth the strange and terrible chant, which is but meaningless gibberish to him. As to those who hear it, I and only I, know it's grim and fearful. Meaning, Cain's brain whirled in his efforts to formulate some plan of action. For the first time during the whole search for the girl, he felt himself against a blank wall. This palace was a labyrinth, a maze in which he could decide no direction. The corridors seemed to run, without plan or purpose. And how could he find Marilyn, prisoned as she doubtless was in one of the myriad chambers or cells? Or had she already passed over the borderline of life? Or succumbed to the brutal torture-lust of Nicarri eyes? Of Nikari, he scarcely heard the ravings and mutterings of the dying man. Stranger, do you indeed live, or are you but one of the ghosts, which have haunted me of late? Stealing through the darkness of my cell. Nay, you are flesh and blood. But you are a white savage, as Nakari's race are black savages. Eons ago, when your ancestors were defending their caves against the tiger and the mammoth, with crude spears of flint, the gold spires of my people split the stars. They are gone and forgotten, and the world is a waste of barbarians, white and black. Let me too pass as a dream that is forgotten in the mists of the ages Cain rose and paced the cell his fingers closed like steel talons as on a sword hilt and a blind red wave of fury surged through his brain oh god to get his foes before the keen blade that had been taken from him to face the whole city, one man against them all Cain pressed his hands against his temples, the moon was nearly full when last I saw it But I know not how long ago that was. I know not how long I have been in this accursed palace, or how long I lay in that dungeon where Nakari threw me. The time of full moon may be past, and... Oh, merciful God! Marilyn may be dead already. Tonight is the moon of skulls, muttered the other. I heard one of my jailers speak of it. Kane gripped the dying man's shoulder with unconscious force. If you hate Nakari or love mankind... In God's name, tell me how to save the child. Love mankind? The priest laughed insanely. What has a son of Atlantis and a priest of forgotten Golgor to do with love? What are mortals but food for the jaws of the black gods? Softer girls than your Mara have died screaming beneath these hands, and my heart was as iron to their cries. Yet hate. The strange eyes flamed with fearful light, for hate... I will tell you what you wish to know. Go to the Tower of Death when the moon is risen. Slay the black priest who lurks behind the skull of Nakura. And then when the chanting of the worshippers below ceases and the masked slayer beside the black altar raises the sacrificial dagger, speak in a loud voice that the people can understand, bidding them set free the victim and offer up instead. Nakari, Queen of Nagari, As for the rest, afterward you must rely on your own craft and prowess if you come free. Cain shook him. Swift, tell me how I am to reach this tower. Go back through the door once you came. The man was sinking fast. His words dropped to whispers. Turn to the left and go a hundred paces. Mount the stair you come to as high as it goes. In the corridor where it ceases, go straight for another hundred paces. And when you come to what seems a blank wall, feel over it until you find a projecting spring. Press this and enter the door, which will open. You will then be out of the palace and in the cliffs against which it is built, and in the only one of the secret corridors known to the people of Nagari. Turn to your right and go straight down the passage for 500 paces. There you will come to a stair which leads up to the niche behind the skull. The Tower of Death is built into the cliff and projects above it. There are two stairs. Suddenly, the voice trailed out. Cain leaned forward and shook the man, but he suddenly rose up with a great effort. His eyes blazed with a wild and unearthly light, and he flung his shackled arms wide. The sea, he cried in a great voice. The golden spires of Atlantis and the sun on the deep blue waters. I come, and as Cain reached to lay him down again, he slumped back, dead. Chapter Six of Seven The Shattering of the Skull
1: By thought, a crawling ruin, by life, a leaping mire, by a broken heart in the breast of the world and the end of the world's desire. Chesterton
0: Cain wiped the cold sweat from his pale brow as he hurried down the shadowy passage. Outside this horrible palace, it must be night. Even now, the full moon, the grim moon of skulls, might be rising above the horizon. He paced off a hundred paces and came upon the stair the dying priest had mentioned. This he mounted, and coming into the corridor above, he measured off another hundred paces and brought up short against what appeared to be a doorless wall. It seemed an age before his frantic fingers found a piece of projecting metal. There was a creak of rusty hinges as the hidden door swung open, and Kane looked into a passageway, darker than the one in which he stood. He entered, and when the door shut behind him, he turned to his right and groped his way along for 500 paces. There, the corridor was lighter. Light sifted in from without, and Kane discerned a stairway. Up this he went for several steps, then halted. Baffled, at a sort of landing, the stairway became two, one leading away to the left, the other to the right. Cain cursed. He felt that he could not afford to make a mistake. Time was too precious. But how was he to know which would lead him to the niche, where the priest hid? The Atlantean had been about to tell him of these stairs when struck by the delirium which precedes death, and Cain wished fervently that he had lived only a few moments longer. At any rate, he had no time to waste. Right or wrong, he must chance it. He chose the right-hand stair and ran swiftly up it. No time for caution now. He felt instinctively that the time of the sacrifice was close at hand. He came into another passage and discerned by the change in masonry that he was out of the cliffs again and in some building presumably the Tower of Death. He expected any moment to come upon another stair, and suddenly his expectations were realized. But instead of up, it led down. From somewhere in front of him, Cain heard a vague rhythmic murmur, and a cold hand gripped his heart. The chanting of the worshippers before the black altar. He raced forward recklessly, rounded a turn in the corridor, "'Brought up short against a door "'and looked through a tiny aperture. "'His heart sank. "'He had chosen the wrong stair "'and had wandered into some other building "'adjoining the Tower of Death. "'He looked upon a grim and terrible scene. "'In a wide-open space, "'before a great black tower "'whose spire rose above the crags behind it. two long lines of black dancers swayed and writhed. "'Their voices rose in a strange, meaningless chant.' and they did not move from their tracks. From their knees upward, their bodies swayed in fantastic rhythmical motions, and in their hands, torches tossed and whirled, shedding a lurid, shifting red light over the scene. Behind them were ranged a vast concourse of people who stood silent. The dancing torchlight gleamed on a sea of glittering eyes and black faces. In front of the dancers rose the Tower of Death, Gigantically tall, black and horrific. No door or window opened in its face, but high on the wall, in a sort of ornamented frame, there leered a grim symbol of death and decay, the skull of Nakura. A faint, eerie glow surrounded it. Lit somehow from within the tower, Cain knew, and wondered by what strange art the priests had kept the skull from decay and dissolution so long. But it was neither the skull nor the tower, which gripped the Puritans' horrified gaze and held it. Between the converging lines of yelling, swaying worshippers, there rose a great black altar. On this altar lay a slim white shape, Marilyn. The word burst from Cain's lips in a great sob. For a moment he stood frozen, helpless, struck blind, No time now to retrace his steps and find the niche where the Skull Priest lurked. Even now, a faint glow was apparent behind the spire of the tower, etching that spire blackly against the sky. The moon had risen. The chant of the dancers soared up to a frenzy of sound, and from the silent watchers behind them began a sinister low rumble of drums. To Kane's dazed mind it seemed that he looked on some red debauch of a lower hell. What ghastly worship of past eons did these perverted and degenerate rites symbolize? Cain knew that these black people aped the rituals of their former masters in their crude way. And even in his despair, he found time to shudder at the thought of what those original rites must have been. Now a fearful shape rose up beside the altar where lay the silent girl. A tall black man, entirely naked, save for a hideous painted mask on his face, and a great headdress of waving plumes. The drone of the chant sank low for an instant, then rose up again to wilder heights. Was it the vibrations of their song that made the floor quiver beneath Cain's feet? Kane, with shaking fingers, began to unbar the door. Not to do now, but to rush out barehanded and die beside the girl he could not save. Then his gaze was blocked by a giant form which shouldered in front of the door. A huge black man, a chief by his bearing and apparel, leaned idly against the wall as he watched the proceedings. Kane's heart gave a great leap. This was too good to be true. Thrust in the black man's girdle was the pistol he himself had carried. He knew that his weapons must have been divided among his captors. This pistol meant nothing to the chief, But he must have been taken by its strange shape, and was carrying it as savages will wear useless trinkets. Or perhaps he thought it a sort of war club. At any rate, there it was. And again, floor and building seemed to tremble. Kane pulled the door silently inward and crouched in the shadows, behind his victim like a great brooding tiger. His brain worked swiftly and formulated his plan of action. There was a dagger in the girdle beside the pistol. The black man's back was turned squarely to him, and he must strike from the left to reach the heart and silence him quickly. All this passed through Solomon's brain in a flash as he crouched. The black man was not aware of his foe's presence until Cain's lean right hand shot across his shoulder and clamped on his mouth, jerking him backward. At the same instant, the Puritan's left hand tore the dagger from the girdle and with one desperate plunge sank the keen blade home. The black crumpled without a sound, and in an instant, Cain's pistol was in its owner's hand. A second's investigation showed that it was still loaded, and the flint still in place. No one had seen the swift murder. Those few who stood near the doorway were all facing the black altar, enwrapped in the drama which was there unfolding. As Kane stepped across the corpse, the chanting of the dancers ceased abruptly. In the instant of silence which followed, Cain heard, above the pounding of his own pulse, the night wind rustled the death-like plumes of the mask horror beside the altar. A rim of the moon glowed above the spire. Then from high up on the face of the Tower of Death, a deep voice boomed out in a strange chant. Mayhap the black priest who spoke behind the skull knew not what his words meant but Cain believed that he at least mimicked the very intonation of those long-dead brown acolytes. Deep, mystic, resonant, the voice sounded out like the endless flowing of long tides on the broad white beaches. The masked one beside the altar drew himself up to his great height and raised a long, glimmering blade. Cain recognized his own sword, even as he leveled his pistol and fired. Not at the masked priest, but full at the skull, which gleamed in the face of the tower. For in one blinding flash of intuition, he remembered the dying Atlanteans' words. Their brains hinge on the skull of Nakura. Simultaneously with the crack of the pistol came a shattering crash. The dry skull flew into a thousand pieces and vanished, and behind it the chant broke off short in a death shriek. The rapier fell from the hand of the masked priest and many of the dancers crumpled to the earth. The others halting short, spellbound. Through the deathly silence, which reigned for an instant, Cain rushed toward the altar. Then all hell broke loose. A babble of bestial screams rose to the shuddering stars. For centuries, only their faith in the dead, Nakura had held together the blood-drenched brains of the black Nagari. Now their symbol had vanished, had been blasted into nothing before their eyes. It was to them as if the skies had split, the moon fallen and the world ended. All the red visions, which lurked at the backs of their corroded brains, leaped into fearful life. All the latent insanity, which was their heritage, rose to claim its own. And Cain looked upon a whole nation, turned to bellowing maniacs. Screaming and roaring, they turned on each other, men and women, tearing with frenzied fingernails, stabbing with spears and daggers, beating each other with the flaming torches, while over all rose the roar of frantic human beasts. With clubbed pistol, Cain battered his way through the surging, writhing ocean of flesh to the foot of the altar stairs. Nails raked him, knives slashed at him, torches scorched his garments, but he paid no heed. Then, as he reached the altar, a terrible figure broke from the struggling mass and charged him. Nakari, queen of Nagari, crazed as any of her subjects, rushed upon the white man with dagger bared and eyes horribly aflame. You shall not escape this time, white man, she was screaming. But before she reached him, a great black giant, dripping blood and blind from a gash across his eyes, reeled across her path and lurched into her. She screamed like a wounded cat and struck her dagger into him, and then the groping hands closed on her. The blind giant whirled her on high with one dying effort, and her last scream knifed the din of battle. As Nakari, last queen of Nagari, crashed against the stones of the altar and fell shattered and dead at Cain's feet. Cain sprang up the black steps, worn deep by the feet of myriad priests and victims. And as he came... The masked figure, who had stood like one turned to stone, came suddenly to life. He bent swiftly, caught up the sword he had dropped, and thrust savagely at the charging white man. But the dynamic quickness of Solomon Kane was such as few men could match. A twist and sway of his steely body, and he was inside the thrust, and as the blade slid harmlessly between arm and chest, he brought down the heavy pistol barrel among the waving plumes crashing headdress, mask, and skull with one blow. Then, ere he turned to the fainting girl who lay bound on the altar, he flung aside the shattered pistol and snatched his stolen sword from the nerveless hand, which still grasped it, feeling a fierce thrill of renewed confidence at the familiar feel of the hilt. Marilyn lay white and silent. Her death-like face turned blindly to the light of the moon, which shone calmly down on the frenzied scene. At first, Kane thought her to be dead, but his searching fingers detected a faint flutter of pulse. He cut her bonds and lifted her tenderly. Only to drop her again and whirl as a hideous, blood-stained figure of insanity came leaping and gibbering up the steps. Full upon Cain's outthrust blade, the creature ran and toppled back into the red swirl below, clawing beast-like at its mortal wound. Then, beneath Cain's feet, the altar rocked. A sudden tremor hurled him to his knees, and his horrified eyes beheld the Tower of Death sway to and fro. Some horror of nature was taking place, and this fact pierced the crumbling brains of the fiends, who fought and screamed below. A new element entered into their shrieking, and then the Tower of Death swayed far out with a terrible and awesome majesty broke from the rocking crags, and gave way with a thunder of crashing worlds. Great stones and shards of masonry came raining down, bringing death and destruction to hundreds of screaming humans below. One of these stones crashed to pieces on the altar beside Cain, showering him with dust. Earthquake. He gasped, and smitten by this new terror, he caught up the senseless girl and plunged recklessly down the cracking steps hacking and stabbing away through the crimson whirlpools of bestial humanity that still tore and raven. The rest was a red nightmare, in which Cain's dazed brain refused to record all its horrors. It seemed that for screaming crimson centuries, he reeled through narrow, winding streets where bellowing, screeching black demons battled and died, among titanic walls and black columns that rocked against the sky and crashed to ruin about him while the earth heaved and trembled beneath his staggering feet, and the thunder of crashing towers filled the world. Gibbering fiends in human shape clutched and clawed at him to fade before his flailing sword and falling stones bruised and battered him. He crouched as he reeled along, covering the girl with his body as best he could, sheltering her alike from blind stone and blinder human. And at last, when it seemed mortal endurance had reached its limit... He saw the great black outer wall of the city loom before him, rent from earth to parapet, and tottering for its fall. He dashed through a crevice, and gathering his efforts, made one last sprint, and scarce was he out of reach. than the wall crashed, falling inward like a great black wave. The night wind was in his face, and behind him rose the clamor of the doomed city as Cain staggered down the hill path that trembled beneath his feet. Chapter 7 of 7 The Faith
1: of Solomon. The last lost giant, even God, is risen against the world. Chesterton.
0: Dawn lay like a cool white hand on the brow of Solomon Cain. The nightmares faded from his soul as he breathed deep of the morning wind, which blew up from the jungle far below his feet. A wind laden with the musk of decaying vegetation. Yet it was like the breath of life to him, for the scents were those of the clean natural disintegration of outdoor things, not the loathsome aura of decadent antiquity that lurks in the walls of Ian Old Cities. Kane shuddered involuntarily. He bent over the sleeping girl who lay at his feet, arranged as comfortably as possible with the few soft tree branches he had been able to find for her bed. Now she opened her eyes and stared about wildly for an instant. Then, as her gaze met the face of Solomon, lighted by one of his rare smiles, she gave a little sob of thankfulness and clung to him. "'Oh, Captain Kane, have we in truth escaped from yon fearful city? Now it seems all like a dream. After you fell through the secret door in my chamber, Nakari later went to your dungeon, as she told me, and returned in vile humor. She said you were a fool,' for she had offered you the kingdom of the world and you had but insulted her. She screamed and raved and cursed like one insane and swore that she would yet, alone, build a great empire of Nagari. Then she turned on me and reviled me, saying that you held me, a slave, in more esteem than a queen and all her glory. And in spite of my pleas, she took me across her knees and whipped me until I swooned. Afterward, I lay half senseless for a long time and was only dimly aware that men came to Nikari and said that you had escaped. They said you were a sorcerer, for you faded through a solid wall like a ghost, but Nikari killed the men who had brought you from the cell, and for hours she was like a wild beast. How long I lay thus, I know not. In those terrible rooms and corridors where no natural sunlight ever entered, one lost all track of time. But from the time you were captured by Nikari and the time that I was placed on the altar, at least a day and a night and another day must have passed. It was only a few hours before the sacrifice that word came you had escaped. Nakari and her star maidens came to prepare me for the rite. At the bare memory of that fearful ordeal, she whimpered and hid her face in her hands. I must have been drugged. I only know that they clothed me in the white robe of the sacrifice and carried me into a great black chamber filled with horrid statues. There I lay for a space like one in a trance, while the women performed various strange and shameful rites according to their grim religion. Then I fell into a swoon. And when I emerged, I was lying bound on the black altar. The torches were tossing and the devotees chanting. Behind the Tower of Death... The rising moon was beginning to glow. All this I knew faintly, as in a deep dream. And as in a dream, I saw the glowing skull high on the tower and the gaunt black naked priest holding a sword above my heart. Then I knew no more. What happened? At about that moment, Cain answered, I emerged from a building wherein I had wandered by mistake and blasted their hellish skull to atoms with a pistol ball. Whereupon, all these people, being cursed from birth by demons, and being likewise possessed of devils, fall to slaying one another. And in the midst of the tumult, an earthquake cometh to pass, which shakes the walls down. Then I snatch you up, and running at random, come upon a rent in the outer wall, and thereby escape, carrying you who seem in a swoon. Once only you awoke. After I had crossed the bridge across the sky, as the black people called it, which was crumbling beneath our feet by reason of the earthquake, after I had come to these cliffs, but dared not descend them in the darkness, the moon being nigh to setting by that time, you awoke, and screamed and clung to me, whereupon I soothed you as best I might, and after a time you fell into a natural sleep. And now what? asked the girl. England. Kane’s deep eyes lighted at the word. I find it hard to remain in the land of my birth for more than a month at a time. Yet, though I am cursed with the wanderlust, 'tis tis a name which ever rouses a glow in my bosom. And how of you, child! Oh, heaven! she cried, clasping her small hands. Home! Something of which to be dreamed, never attained, I fear. Oh, Captain Cain, how shall we gain through all the vast leagues of jungle which lie between this place and the coast? Marilyn, said Cain gently, stroking her curly hair, methinks you lack somewhat in faith, both in providence and in me. Nay, alone, I am a weak creature, having no strength or might in me. Yet in times past hath God made me a great vessel of wrath, and a sword of deliverance, and I trust shall do so again. Look you, little Marilyn, in the last few hours, as it were, We have seen the passing of an evil race and the fall of a foul black empire. Men died by thousands about us, and the earth rose beneath our feet, hurling down towers that broke the heaven. Yea, death fell about us in a red rain. Yet we escaped unscathed. Therein is more than the hand of man. Nay, a power, the mightiest power. That which guided me across the world straight to that demon city, which led me to your chamber, which aided me to escape again, and led me to the one man in all the city who would give the information I must have the strange, evil priest of an elder race who lay dying in a subterranean cell, and which guided me to the outer wall as I ran blindly and at random. For should I have come under the cliffs which formed the rest of the wall? we had surely perished. That same power brought us safely out of the dying city and safe across the rocking bridge, which shattered and thundered down into the chasm, just as my feet touched solid earth. think you that having led me this far and accomplished such wonders, the power will strike us down now. Nay, evil flourishes and rules in the cities of men and the waste places of the world but anon the great giant that is God rises and smites for the righteous, and they lay faith on him. I say this, This cliff shall we descend in safety, and yon dank jungle traverse in safety, and it is as sure that in old Devon your people shall clasp you again to their bosom, as that you stand here. And now for the first time Marilyn smiled with the quick eagerness of a normal young girl, and Cain sighed in relief. Already the ghosts were fading from her haunted eyes, and Cain looked to the day when her horrible experiences should be as a dimming dream. One glance he flung behind him, where beyond the scowling hills, the lost city of Nagari lay shattered and silent amid the ruins of her own walls and the fallen crags which had kept her invincible so long, but which had at last betrayed her to her doom. A momentary pang smote him as he thought of the myriad of crushed, still forms lying amid those ruins. Then the blasting memory of their evil crimes surged over him, and his eyes hardened. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. For thou hast made of a city in heap, of a defended city, a ruin, a palace of strangers, to be no city, it shall never be built. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth suddenly away. Yeah, it shall be at an instant suddenly, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Verily, Marilyn, said Cain with a sigh. With mine own eyes have I seen the prophecies of Isaiah come to pass. They were drunken, but not with wine. Nay, blood was their drink, and in that red flood they dipped deep and terribly. Then, taking the girl by the hand, he started toward the edge of the cliff. At this very point, Hattie ascended, in the night, how long ago it seemed. Kane's clothing hung in tatters about him. He was torn, scratched, and bruised. But in his eyes shone the clear, calm light of serenity as the sun came up, flooding cliffs and jungle with a golden light that was like a promise of joy and happiness. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production.